Alex is hunting down a dangerous AWOL CIA operative when he runs into Nicholas Kane, a man who claims to have once worked for his target. In order to see justice served, the two men agree to work together, but perhaps there's something more between them? I'm Heather Songster, and this is Hopelessly Romantic. Welcome back, readers and romance seekers, to another episode. It's December, a wonderful time filled with oodles of wonderful holidays, delicious food, and dare I say, romance. But it is a busy time of year, and I don't have as much time as I'd like on my hands, so I'm beginning a new tradition called Harlequin Holiday. I'm more or less avoiding Harlequin novels these days, but since they're easily digestible and easy to get... I figured they'd be a good way to ease up during the holiday madness. So our next two main episodes will be from the myriad of Christmas-themed Harlequins, and will probably be shorter than a normal episode. Again, I'm still experimenting with some formatting, so I do thank you all for sticking around while I figure these things out. But that's enough housekeeping for now. I can't wait to get started with today's novel, His Christmas Guardian by Cindy Dees. And this comes to us from Harlequin's Romantic Suspense imprint. Now, if you're anything like me, that title has already caught your attention. I was in the bookstore trying to decide if I really wanted to do Harlequin Holiday when that title caught my eye. We know the general theme of a lot of Harlequins. A woman in some sort of peril, no matter how capable she is, is assisted by a highly skilled hero who helps solve all of her problems. Problems can range from a surprise pregnancy to a murder mystery to financial hardship. As far as Harlequins go, I would have expected to see the title Her Christmas Guardian. Using his instead of hers, I had an impression that we would have seen the script flipped a little bit. Instead of the hero being the highly skilled law officer or former soldier, it would be the heroine protecting the man. The formula did get switched around, just not in the way that I expected. When I saw this book in the store, I only saw the spine. I pulled it out, expecting to see the typical man-slash-woman pairing, and you can imagine my surprise when I was met with two men. I've talked very briefly about this once, ages ago. Harlequin has a dedicated LGBTQI plus imprint called Karina Press, separating it almost completely from the regular line. And as best as I can tell, Karina Press does exclusively ebooks. So this is a pretty big deal, to find a queer Harlequin romance in one of their major imprints on the shelves of a big box bookstore. After I've done a little bit of digging, this is not the first queer Harlequin, but the addition to the canon is fairly recent, and I hope that this is a sign of good things to come. And of course, because I'd like to support that kind of behavior, I had to buy the book. Now, for our author... She uses the name Cindy Dees to write romantic thrillers, and the About Author page describes her as a former Air Force pilot and former part-time spy. That is quite the resume, and probably is a good sign with uh, considering today's subject matter. She also writes what she calls wholesome romance, but under the name Cynthia Dees. But I don't really see a lot of gay romances, commonly referred to as MM, on either of her websites, so... I don't know how this is gonna go. In all fairness, I've not read a lot of dedicated MM romance either, so I'm also new to this genre as well. I made an effort to find more queer romances for more upcoming episodes, and this will only be the first. But anyway, we need to get into the actual book. 
It's the fourth novel in the Runaway Ranch series by Cindy Dees, but if I hadn't known that, I don't think I would have noticed. There's a group of characters in this novel called the Medusas. They're highly classified and dangerous women in the U.S. government. And as best as I can tell, they operate in Montana, and I suspect the other books follow them. I don't know which of them feature in previous novels, but otherwise I don't really notice any other connections. This is probably more of a side story than it is a continuation of the series. I want to touch on one point before we really get started. The back blurb is a little interesting. Rather, the top tagline on the back blurb is. It reads, trained to be enemies, but these guys, they're both covert operators for the same U.S. government agency. I know that the various different branches have beef with one another, but it's like in that big sibling kind of way. Enemies is really just pushing it a tad far, in my opinion. But that back cover is not what catches our interest, it is the cover itself. Taking a good look at it, it almost seems, and I hate to say this, sinister. We see the faces of two men. In the foreground, a three-quarters profile of a sharp-angled, faced man, with hair that is as close to a pompadour as you can get in this year of our Lord 2022. And behind him is a man with a softer face, short beard, and wearing a sleeveless red tank. I can't really tell what our first man is wearing, but I like to think it's a tux. It's for some reason the impression that I get. The way red tank top is staring at maybe tux does not say lover to me. It reads more like a villain. That's why I feel like this cover looks sinister. The way these two men are posed almost implies that they're at odds with one another, if not outright rivals. The bottom half of the cover is devoted to a shot of the New York skyline at night. And there's not a lot of Christmas in this cover. You could maybe count the sparkles of lights or lens flares as festive, but I've got high standards here. Last year's Christmas data breach did a better job, in my humble opinion. With all that out of the way, let's actually get into this Christmas thriller. The novel opens with Nicholas Kane. Yes, we have a Christmas romance and a hero named Nick Kane. <laughs> so we are already having fun with this. Uh, he's been working undercover, tailing this guy called Harlan Gray. He and Gray used to work together on the same team, but for some reason, Gray has gone rogue and taken the rest of the team with him. They pulled off some kind of heist that has left several U.S. agents dead while Nick was off on a solo mission, rather a red herring created by Gray. So in order to get things straight, Nick has taken some personal time off to track and trail Gray, and it's led him to an auction house in New York City. We do get some proper Christmas nods with descriptions of decorations, and it does help set the mood. Nick follows Gray through the auction house, where the quarry stops to examine a gold statue of a man on a horse, wearing what is described as Middle Eastern-style clothing, and dated to about 1190-ish A.D., and it's valued at a cool one ten million. Yeah, ten million. I've got no idea how much something should cost, but the book tells it that this is a high price for this particular piece. Once he's finished looking, Gray heads out. Nick tries to follow him, but he gets stopped by someone that he assumes is also working with Gray. By stopped, I mean attacked, and these guys duke it out. Eventually, his attacker gets behind Nick with a chokehold, and Nick assumes that it's curtains. But Alexander Creed is not necessarily going in for the kill. Nick's got a good hold on him, too. It's nearly a stalemate, with the odds maybe closer to Alex's favor. 
Nick bows to Alex's better hold, and Alex has now essentially taken Nick prisoner. And he's done this by using the classic handcuff themselves to each other gambit. Nick goes along with this. I guess being a spy means you have to be a prisoner without looking like you're a prisoner. In order to hide their connection, they come up with another classic move. Holding hands. Honestly, that's pretty solid cover in New York. It's a bit cliche, but it works. Alex takes Nick to an apartment that he's been using as his base of operations, and once they're inside, Nick pulls out a key that opens the handcuffs, which is hilarious. What's also hilarious is that as he's dragging Nick along, Alex is trying to keep his mind off how hot his new captive is. It's not good for Alex to be attracted to the guys he has to grab, because he usually ends up needing to kill them. Once they're in that apartment, Nick refuses to give Alex his name, so Alex snaps a picture of his face and sends it along to a database. While they wait, Nick very rudely spreads himself out on the couch, and Alex has to remind himself, again, to keep his head in the game. Man spreading much? Alex rolled his eyes at the subtle posturing. Whatever. He was neither odd nor intimidated by such tactics. He took out men like this one every day. Rather than compete for real estate on the couch, Alex pulled out one of the kitchen chairs and sat down on it. He studied Bob, who studied him back intently. The guy really was good-looking, in spite of that awful haircut that hid half his face and the hint of a dark five o'clock shadow that hid the rest. Although that was probably the point. The man had rugged features, a squared jaw, and a nose that either had a slight hawk bump to it or had been broken before. It was a masculine face and sexier than ought to be legal. In fact, the whole man oozed sex appeal. Not that he was looking. Of course. No, not looking at all, Alex. I do have to say, though, this is a pretty generic description of a romantic hero. It hits all the features, the five o'clock shadow, rugged looks, jaw in the shape of a square... Alex describes himself as boring, but they're both spies. They need to be somewhat unremarkable, so I guess a typical guy look isn't so bad for Nick. Alex gets his intel back on Nicholas, which freaks out Nick, because that should be highly classified information. He attacks Alex, but they manage to chill out again, and Alex tells him that they both in fact worked for the CIA, just in different capacities. Alex reveals that he's been tracking down Nick's old boss, Harlan Gray, and presses him to see if he was in on his boss's plots. Nick explains his side, how he figured out that his old boss and teammates were up to something shady, especially after sending him on a mission to take out another member of the CIA. And he's been trying to figure out exactly what Gray got up to. He tells Alex that he can tell something bad went down because, well, this was a bit of a logic leap. Uh, Because he grew up in a house where to come out as gay would have been a death sentence, he had to learn how to read people and their intentions, so that's how he can detect his team's possible treason. I feel like this admission has to come out of left field. I'm not sure if it fits, or if the author was trying to shoehorn the homosexuality into our spy novel. Again, I'm not well read on those queer romances, and it doesn't help that a queer audience may not have even been the target here, but that's another rabbit hole. As he's relaying his situation and getting feedback from Alex, Nick figures out that Alex is someone known as the judge in CIA circles. Basically, when agents go rogue in a bad way, you know, like light treason level rogue, they send in Alex and he solves the problem. I'm sure I don't need to extrapolate on his problem-solving methods. 
Suffice to say, if you're an agent and you've had a visit from the judge, you are in some deep trouble, and you'll be lucky if you walk away. The two men put their heads together to try and figure out what was so special about that golden statue. Not really getting anywhere with it, they run a tail and stake out, and get to snuggle close together as they keep an eye on their quarry. They split up to cover better ground, and as they converse over their microphones, Nick tells Alex that it's nice not to have to hide his sexual preference. And Alex reveals that, and this is a quote, they bat for the same team. Is that phrase still used? I feel like I haven't heard it in a while. But Nick reveals that he had already figured it out when they pulled the hand-holding stunt when they were handcuffed together, and Alex was pretty damn chill. My dude, the way you reacted when I held your hand when we were handcuffed together, hot move by the way, most straight men would go bored stiff if I grabbed their hand and wouldn't know what to do for a second or two. But you, you were as relaxed as could be about it. I was not relaxed about it, Alex exclaimed under his breath. Okay, fair. You definitely felt the whatever it was between us, and it threw you for a loop, but not an oh shit, I'm straight and holding another man's hand loop. It was more of an oh shit, this guy is hot and I'm not sure I want to kill him anymore loop that I threw you for. They share their stories about how their families reacted when they found out that their sons were gay. It's pretty basic, I guess you could figure out. Nick had the violently homophobic father who would rather see his son dead than gay, and Alex had the supportive, on-the-outside, bigoted-on-the-inside kind of parents. For a minute, I thought we might get a mainstream queer romance without the family drama and get loving parents for a change, but I guess it was too much to hope for. Their tail turns into a bust, Gray gets away, and there's nothing left for the guys to do except uh, hang around and wait for the next move. Nick asks Alex what he's going to do, and Alex replies that he's going to maybe get some Christmas shopping done. Here, Nick reveals himself as a Christmas humbug, and it's not a surprise given that his family is total trash. So he's going to stay behind at Alex's apartment and nap. So of course, Alex gets into his head to buy a bunch of last-minute Christmas things and surprise Nick with it. It's honestly kind of cute, if you ignore the fact that they decorated a Christmas tree with bullet casings. Um, it is also the most heteronormative thing that I can imagine, and it's weird seeing it in a gay romance. It actually did get me thinking about a philosophy that I've had about action movie stars. Okay, bear with me here. When you think of a lead character for an action film, the first thing that might come to your mind is this big buff guy or cold stone spy man, male soldier, that kind of thing. And when writers want to approach an action star that's a woman, they have to pump her full of hashtag girl boss to show us all how tough and just as capable that she is. But my philosophy to such characters is pretty simple. Create an action movie lead. They're probably male, right? Okay, now change nothing about them except their gender. Ta-da! You've now got a realistic representation of an actual woman in a combat or thriller role. Feminism is great. I sing that song all damn day. But if you have to tell us how hard you're going to go into the feminism, it feels pandering at best and annoying or aggressive at worst. The entire time I was reading this novel, I felt like I could switch the genders of either Alex or Nick and nothing would have changed. And I'm not sure if that's good or bad. Even when it comes to their families, just change their gay to I'm going into the military 
and you might get similar reactions from families if they're bigoted and stuck in old-fashioned mindsets about gender roles. This gives us the most heteronormative gay couple on the planet, and it's Christmas. Of course, we now have to pull from the Christmas sucks but not really trope that those Hallmark movies are so fond of, except it's two deadly spies instead of high school sweethearts. Along with the Christmas decorations, Alex also got some Christmas movies to watch. On the top of the list is Die Hard, and while I might question whether or not it's a Christmas film, my technical advisor will happily die on the hill that it is. It's not important to the plot, I just had to point out that they even brought the Die Hard debate into this book. But moving on, through an amusing display of secret suit shopping and art gallery spy hunting, we figure out that the Golden Horse statue is part of a group of nativity scenes. And in that group is not just any nativity scene, it's the nativity scene. As in, a set of figurines crafted by one of the actual wise men who were present to see the Christ child in the manger, called the Magi Kretsch. I'll keep my skeptics snark to a minimum and move on to let you all know that Grace stole the whole damn thing and plans to make a boatload of money off of all of these figures. I will also tell you that I entertained myself with a little Googling, looking for the specific words Magi Kresh, I think that's how you pronounce it, and as far as I can determine, that isn't actually a thing you'll see this phrase used for, you know, regular nativity scenes. Um, the Smithsonian has, does have a piece describing that the first nativity scene being staged with people and animals and such was by a Franciscan monk back in 1223. I'm not really a historian, though, and certainly not a biblical scholar or theologian, so I've got no damn clue if the first original nativity is actually a thing. They also mention a country called Zagastan, where the thing came out of, and it's definitely not a real place. Anyway... On their way out of the auction house, they get attacked by some of Gray's men, and they manage to get away with some cuts and bruises. This gives us tons of opportunity to get to see them and each other in towels after they've showered off, and we get to rise into sexual tension there. Things really heat up when they see that Alex is bleeding, but he can't see from where, so Nick helpfully offers to examine his back end. This is like every cliche ever, and it's great. And of course they kiss, but it's because Alex needs Nick to pay attention. It's very important that he understands how dangerous this mission is, and Nick can't just be all blasé about his well-being. He's been pretty gung-ho, more concerned with his mission than his own safety. And Alex is finding himself caring more and more for Nick. He'd very much prefer if Nick stayed alive, so Alex tells him this with a big kiss. Like you do. Of course, nothing gets solved right now. We're only partway through this book. They need to come up with a way to get Grey to come after them, instead of trying to track Grey down themselves. While they were attacked after visiting the auction house, they managed to put one of those guys deep into a hospital. They pay a visit, failing to get any good info out of him, but they did steal his phone. They build an encryption-busting machine. Don't ask me how it works. I am not a spy. And they use it to try and figure out where Grey stashed the rest of the nativity scenes. Because if they steal them, Grey will most certainly come after them. There's a bit of sidestep to the plot. They've got to ruin the auction for the Golden Horseman in order to get Grey to think twice about selling the whole lot. During this bit, the concept of artifact provenance comes up basically where an art piece or historical artifact came from and how it got there. In theory, it's supposed to prevent exactly what's happening right now, a bad guy stealing things from their homelands and selling it on the pretense of historical preservation or art history. 
So Nick and Alex get a plant into the auction to make a scene, saying that the statue is a fake, hoping to spook the auction house owner into suspending the sale. Uh, no luck, though, and the statue gets bids well over $100 million. Like, damn. But this and the ensuing chase down after Grey is enough to piss off Grey enough to get him to come after them, just like they'd wanted. While they were playing that game, more encryption busting was happening, and they figured that the rest of the Nativity statues were stashed in this place called Pleasant Falls, in upstate New York. So the guys head up there, and you'd think that they'd get something super locked down, high security to hang out in while they figure things out. <laughs> no. They book a room at this quaint bed and breakfast, decked all the way to the halls. They use an alias that Gray wouldn't know, but, you know, tad risky, if you ask me. Alex is practically giddy with delight, and Nick is contemplating possibly dying in what equates to a Hallmark movie set on steroids. When they get to the bed and breakfast, the owner of the house hilariously follows the proper cliché script, asking how long they've been a couple. Oh, of course they're a couple. Just look at them. Those boys are so in love. And what really ramps this up into Oh My Godsville is the old woman lamenting that she'd like to retire, but she can't really sell this old place or hire a manager since all of the young people want to visit, but no one really wants to live here. And how coincidental is it that, since earlier in the story, the guys were talking about retirement ideas if they live that long, and one of them was thinking about living in just this sort of place? I'm telling you, it's cheesy holiday movie wrapped up in a spy thriller, and I love it. They even go into town for holiday fun and join in on the annual snowball fight, and then talk about adopting a dog. You just can't get cozier than this. If I'm being honest, the tone switch to high-stakes spy mission to cozy gays live laugh-loving in Upper New York State is a little ridiculous, but for some reason a lot of these sins are waved away by the Christmas backdrop and I'm here for it. But who got cares about any about that? Uh, they've got a nativity to steal. They track the warehouse Gray stashed it at. They go through all of the boxes until they find the actual piece itself, a small nativity carved from wood, supposedly made by one of those men who were actually there. And they're touching it, exposing it to the elements, and... Uh, sorry, my inner art history nerd just ran out of the room screaming. Anyway, they pack it back up, make it look like they were never there, and haul it and themselves back to the bed and breakfast, and hope to God that they live through the night. Nick calls in support from the Medusas, the girl boss group that I was telling you about earlier, and they only have to wait now for the next plot point to hit. So what do two hot gay spies do while waiting for the plot to show up? Confess their feelings and do the do. I mean, duh. And I have to admit, things get a little more descriptive than I was expecting. They have the who's going first conversation and they decide on Nick. Um, I can't remember if we've ever actually read the word penis in any of these novels, not just the Harlequins, but it's a rare enough event that I had to make a note of it. I am also not sure if describing an erection as loud and proud, as it's revealed is a bit on the nose for a gay romance, it, it feels a little silly. And I'm not sure if our author is as comfortable with writing male sex scenes, since a lot of the more descriptive nuance pretty much falls off a cliff once Nick gets himself situated inside of Alex. But it's also par for the course in Harlequin to keep things a little closer to the shadows. 
It really is hard to say if the restriction is Harlequin's editor's or the author's comfort level. Or it may just be a case of what Harlequin thinks its readers are comfortable with. Remember, the main demographic for these novels is older women, and this might be new territory for a lot of them. I couldn't help but be reminded when I come across a line like this. Alex stared up at Nick, who stared back. The raw intimacy of staring into each other's eyes, into each other's souls, was intense and lifted the sex out of the realm of the physical and into the realm of magic. This is the kind of stuff that romance novel skeptics come up with in order to make fun of romance novels and the people who read them. It's sincere nearly to the point of parody. Anyway, after a little bit, the dreaded plot catches up, oh darn, and they have to get ready for Grey. They hang out at some random ski shack or wherever, and Grey finds them sooner than they expect. They've got the nativity with them, using it as bait, and there goes my inner art nerd screaming again. It seems like this scenario takes place over a couple of days, but the story takes us through it through just a couple pages. There's a few close calls, a few moments where Alex is like, that beautiful bastard ba better still be alive to give me children, things like that. Finally, reinforcements arrive via the Medusas and a few other CIA operatives. They corner Grey into the shack where they hid that nativity. You know, the one that was supposedly made by one of the Magi, the one with incalculable value, the one with massive historical and biblical significance. Yeah, when Grey figures out that his goose is cooked, he literally blows himself up along with the nativity. Cool, that's fine. Nick waits for Alex's ears to stop ringing from the explosion, lament that the loss of such a great cultural artifact, and then they propose to each other. A happy ending. Kind of. Shame about the nativity. But who cares? Love! <laughs> yeah, it was silly. But that, I think, is what makes it great. I, I feel, yeah. It certainly mixed up a lot of tropes and cliches, but let's go ahead and get a deeper look with Heather's final score. First, the cover gets a 3 out of 5. It's a good, solid cover, but I feel like it just doesn't quite hit the right notes. If there had been more Christmas nods, or if the men were a little less sinister, I'd rank it higher. It's not a bad cover, but like a lot of Harlequins, it could be better. Drama is a 5 out of 5. If you want a silly Christmas spy thriller, then that is exactly what you're going to get. The stakes were appropriate to the themes, and delightfully on topic as far as seasonality goes. And as the guys mixed up business with pleasure, they made sure to stay on topic when it was important, and then stayed on topic when they could manage, if you catch my drift. And romance is also a 5 out of 5. Nick and Alex honestly had great chemistry. Alex was thoughtful and kind, and Nick wasn't a grinch to the point of dislikability. Their relationship evolved naturally, even if they might have moved faster than usual. Not a lot of romantic couples are declaring marriage after only a few days of chasing no bad guys. But then again, we have to remember what kind of book we're reading. What I'm really saying is, they were great together. Spice is going to get a nice and toasty 3 out of 5, I think. While we saw the usual vague descriptors that we've come to expect from Harlequin, we got more than I thought we would. There was only the one sex scene, but the sexual tension built up enough through the novel that it felt like a natural progression. Now, how it compares to actual queer romance written for actual queer audiences, I'm not sure. The only comparison I might have is Sierra Simone's new Camelot series, and that is so far beyond what Harlequin will touch, I really can't draw any conclusions. 
and realism will sadly get a 2 out of 5, but that's not a big surprise really. Yes, yeah, spies are real, and art theft, especially the kind that strips cultural artifacts away from the rifle owners, it's absolutely real, but the combo of the two inside a spy thriller is just a little much. But again, the realism score isn't just one metric, and it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. So what does matter? In my humble opinion, I have to ask myself, did I have fun reading this book? And I have to say, yes I did. It was exactly what it was supposed to be. A romance between two spies as they hunt down a target hell-bent on ruining everyone's Christmas, or stealing something culturally significant for his own game. The only pitfalls would perhaps be the fact that it might be the most heteronormative thing I've ever read, even if it's a queer romance. And it dips into so many cliches, both of the spy variety and of the Christmas feel-good romance variety, but that's not always bad. The one big thing that would give me real true pause is the possibility that the queer audience was not the intended demographic for this novel. I'd like to think that Harlequin is trying to branch out and reach other demographics with this book, but considering that they already have Karina Press in their lineup, I can't be so sure. The ethics of appropriating queer stories to be consumed by straight white audiences is questionable at best, but I would very much like to live in a world where these stories can live side by side with the rest of the Harlequin nonsense. In the end, I'm going to give His Christmas Guardian four reluctantly festive spies out of five. Thank you for joining me, readers and romance seekers, and I hope to see you once again for Hopelessly Romantic. If you like the show, please visit us at hopelesslyromanticpodcast.com. If you have questions or want to recommend a read, please email us at contact at hopelesslyromanticpodcast.com. The show is written and produced by me, Heather Songster. Our technical advisor is Kwong Yun Cho. Special thanks to our guest reader, Joshua Songster. Hopelessly Romantic is an H with Kate production, and it doesn't matter what you read, only that it's what you love.